Welcome to the Business of Freelancing. On today's episode, we talk with Brian Castle, man about internet and creator of Process Kit and Productize and Scale, about how to create systems that bring order to your business and how to productize your services. On today's episode of the Business of Freelancing, we're joined by our special guest, Brian Castle. Hello. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to uh, connect with you all again. And on our panel today, we have Meg Cumby. Hello. And I'm your host, Kai Davis. So to kick things off, I'm curious, how did you originally get into selling services? What's your uh, origin story? So let's see, selling services, uh, I guess it just goes back to when I became a freelancer, uh, which was back in 2008, um, the beginning of 2008 which seems like a scary time given that that was the global recession year. But I actually went freelance something like eight months or so before the big crash. And uh, um, I, I often look back on that time, like I wonder what would have happened if I was still in my job, like after like November of 2008, I, I probably would have tried to hold on to that job and maybe would have never gone self-employed, you know? So um but anyway, I was before that I was working at a web design agency in New York, uh, as a mostly as a front end web developer, a little bit of a project manager, and that's th- at that agency where I was for about three years. That's really where I learned like the general model of web design services for clients. You know, by sort of observing what a what a big it, it wasn't a big agency in terms of people, but we were doing very big websites for like Pepsi and and. Uh, and like AT&T and all these other sites. Um, uh, so that's how I sort of learned like the, the general structure of, of a web design service business. And then um, I went freelance. It's By the way, it's also the first time I discovered what freelancing is. I, I remember sitting there at, at the agency um, and I was a full-time salary employee there, but I noticed that the agency would sometimes hire freelancers. And, and those freelancers would like come into our office for like, two or three half days a week and then they would go off and do their other things for the rest of the week whether they're doing other projects or working for other clients and and i thought that was like really interesting and, and i was like well i have the same skills as they do why am i sitting at this desk nine to five you know um and that's when i uh really i like it never even occurred to me that that skill set could could be a freelance thing um until i started to see that and then i um i started Googling and learned all about freelancing. And then I decided I was like, Hey, I'm, I'm young enough. Don't, don't have a, uh, a family or, or mortgage at that time. You know, this was like 12 or 13 years ago now. So I was like, now's a good time to see if I could do this thing on my own. And I went out as a freelance web designer, did that for, you know, a couple of years with clients, started growing that with, with other contractors and things like that. And then eventually, you know, again, like stumbled into seeing, other freelancers building products online and that, and then, you know, the rest is, is history. <laughs> that, that draw to products, was that what led you to, uh, uh, I think it was restaurant engine back in the day, one of your first productized service companies. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think, um, at that point, so, so I, I became a freelance web designer around 2008. I probably started working on restaurant engine around 2011. Um, and, and by that point, I was starting to discover podcasts. Like I, I, I think I was listening to Mixergy was one of the first ones, um, probably startups for the rest of us. And 
you know, the idea of a software as a service, a SaaS sounded really interesting. I, I had also previously dabbled in like selling WordPress themes. Um, and, and I was like, well, how can I build some sort of SaaS product? And all I really knew was how to build websites using WordPress. Um, so it sort of became like the obvious path for me was to, was to offer some sort of like web design service, web design builder around WordPress. And I, and I eventually followed the, that trail toward, well, I need to niche down to an industry and, and that became Restaurant Engine. Very cool. I'm curious what the, just to like connect one more dot here, what that journey from Restaurant Engine to what you're focused on now of Process Kit and uh, your SaaS for processes and systems look like. Was Restaurant Engine sort of the, uh, the, uh, the progenitor of the idea for Process Kit? Like how did you get from one to the other? Um, yeah, but probably a few stops in between. <laughs> uh, uh, so, so let's see. But you know, I think it, I'm I'm not alone. I think most entrepreneurs w- would say that as you move from thing to thing, it's you know one thing clearly, you know, leads nicely into the next. It, looking back on it, it might seem like a like a well planned um, uh, strategic thing, but it's really it, it, you, you sort of like stumble into each step. Um, so. Uh, I was doing Restaurant Engine from 2011, and then I sold that business in 2015, uh, middle of 2015. Um, and uh, by that point, Restaurant Engine itself, like over that four-year time that I was working on it, it it evolved. For, like the original idea was like, I want to build a SaaS, totally hands-off. I want the c- customers to come discover it and sign themselves up and never need any support or service. And, <laughs> and that that lasted about six months before I realized, oh, we need to actually help them set up their websites. Um, that That's essentially what uh, how it became more of a productized service with a little bit of WordPress software underneath. Um, and I built a team, uh, you know, customer support team, a sales team, um, uh, a content marketing team on Restaurant Engine. And building the, those teams and those processes and systems was what enabled me to not only remove myself from the day-to-day, but actually make it a sellable business. And so I sold it in 2015. My next business, which I still run today, is called Audience Ops. Um, and I started that right at the same time in 2015. And it was like, I had learned how to build a a team and a process around content marketing, which helped grow restaurant engine. So that became the, the problem solution that I went to for my next business. And, and I felt really much more confident in building processes and building a team. So, so I went straight into the productized service model, um, instead of the SaaS model at that point, because I was like, if I I considered building a, a couple of SaaS ideas at that time in 2015, but I but I didn't do it then because I was it, it was just clear that it would just take way too long um, the 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 slow runway of building the software and then and then growing the MRR that would just take way too long and so I went to a productized service model which you know it it grew even faster than I expected but I but I knew that it would be a much faster path. Um, and then, um, so so I've been growing audience ops for, since 2015. So now it's been about five years on that. Um, that too has evolved uh, where I'm now removed from the day-to-day. We've got a team of like 25 people or so. We're extremely process-oriented there. Um, and, um, 
and and my team and I have seen the uh, pain points of the hodgepodge of of tools: Google Docs, Trello, communication tools with clients. Um, you know, we're very process oriented, but but there's in in services there's still no getting around that there's going to be some if this then that like oh if, if it's this client and they need their blog post set up in a certain way then our team needs to remember to do things in a certain way or oh if if this batch of clients bought our gold package instead of our silver package you know then these tasks apply and those tasks don't apply so um early on in audience ops we had all these like all that stuff documented in google docs and with like explaining in text, like if this is the situation, then go over here and figure that out. And that just became extremely overwhelming for the team to, to follow. So, um, so more recently, you know, as we get up to 2020, I've, I've been, I've been removed from audience ops in the day to day. So I've been spending my time much more on software. Um, and, and process kit became like the, uh, you know, like, like the obvious need for, for my team. And, and then I, and, and I've been building this community of other client services where, you know, they want to become more process oriented, especially around um, new client onboarding. That's a really important process for us um, and for most agencies. And, uh, and that's where we saw a lot of the, the, the return on investment in, in automating our processes. So, um, so that's what led to, uh, to process kit. But, but for me personally, it, like, I said back in 2015, um, I was not able to do the SaaS then because it would take too long. And, and I wasn't a software developer at that point. I was more of a designer. Up to fast forward to 2018, audience ops is running and and now I'm I have my time freed up. So now so I spent the whole year of 2018 learning to code in Ruby on Rails and and then 2019 starting to build uh, process kit. Beautiful. I, I always like hearing sort of that uh, uh, the evolution of the origin story, just because it's exciting to see like the different turns, the different twists, the different projects that led to where one is today. Yeah, me too. I, I love following people's stories. You know, it's a great thing about these podcasts. <laughs> so, when it comes to uh, processes, what I guess what within a business needs a process within your worldview or process kits worldview? Yeah, I mean, like I said, the the one that we see the most common with with um, the users on Process Kit is new customer onboarding or new client onboarding. And I mean, if you've been doing services for a little while, you know, it's not the most obvious thing. Like some, you know, it, you might think of like, oh, how we onboard our our clients, and it, it's sort of like a a nice to have or it's an afterthought when you think about your services. A lot of people tend to focus on. How do you sell and get more clients and, and how do you grow a team? But what I found when I was growing audience ops is once we focused on the new client onboarding process, um, everything really changed in the business. Like the, the business started in 2015 and we had to, we had to figure out our processes for writing articles for clients and delivering them week to week and stuff like that. But around 2017, like we were feeling a lot of a lot of these like pain points. Like clients didn't stay with us very long, maybe five or six months. Um, we we constantly felt rushed and and kind of uh, under pressure during during the beginning of a client's engagement. So we so in 2017, my my team manager and I stepped back and we and we reassessed our entire 
new client onboarding process. Basically the, the month, the first month of a client's engagement, like what, what is their experience and what is our experience and how can we optimize all of the things in that, in that month? Um, from how much time we spend, um, how, how many co- kickoff calls do we do? What is the cadence of communication with the client? Um, uh, how, how we get set up so that we're not missing any details or any assets or information, um, how the team is, is all squared away so that by day 30, we're delivering the first article and it's smooth sailing from there. So we spent a month or two really improving that process. And from that point forward, we literally saw the, the lifetime value of clients more than double. I mean, clients have, have stayed with us on average well over a year. And many of our clients have been with us the whole time, like four or five years now. Um, and even, and the other interesting thing is that even when things are a little bit rocky to start with a new client, wh- whatever it may be, might, might be something that we missed, might be a, 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 like a personality issue or something like that. Having a really strong new client onboarding process actually results in um, we're able to weather that storm early on easier, and then we and then that client goes on to be a great client for us for like two or three years or more. Um, you know, whereas before when it's like a rocky start, it's almost like they end up looking for an excuse to cancel. Whereas if things are rocky now, it's like they're rooting for us to make it right. You know. Um, there are all these, it's like all these like benefits that fly off of improving that new client onboarding process, you know? Um, I mean, the other, the other big one is from a sales standpoint is like most of the time it's around a month for us. It's, it's like a month long onboarding process. The week after that, they've just like had this really amazing first month experience. Um, and that's a really great point for for us to follow up about asking for a referral or th- or them to go tweet about us or something like that or share with their with their people. Um, it, it's just yeah, it really helps. That that's always the the first process that I recommend focusing on and kind of you know um, stepping out from from there. No, I love it. Uh, mentally, I've always likened client onboarding to almost like. Uh, I think it's the last mile problem in e-commerce where you could have a beautiful website, you could order a thing, it's a great experience, you check out, and then your thing shows up and it's broken. And you're like, oh, I spent that time, I, it was great, and now I have a pile of you know metaphorical poo. I think it's the same thing with client services. Like You could have a great sales process, they could be super uh, excited about what you're selling, what you're going to provide, the problem you're solving. And then if the onboarding is just sort of lackluster, it's like, oh, whoa, there's some dissonance here, it doesn't feel that great. I think you're right. It's a great thing for any freelancer, any agency, any service provider to really focus on just to make sure there's not that dissonance, that it's a positive experience for a new client once they sign that first check. Even on a smaller scale, like even if it's not like for a smaller scale service, like I think, I think you're, you're, no matter what the size of your service, you need some, a good experience for onboarding and, and, uh, uh, something where the client's not wondering what the next step is or, you know, they're just not. Exactly. Yeah. That, and that's, that's the thing, you know, if you think about from the client standpoint, uh, what, what happened just before new client onboarding begins, they, they probably paid you a bunch of money and they probably signed a contract. And so like the minute after they do that, they're all of a sudden put in this state of like, Oh boy, did I just make a big mistake? Like, like what, like, it, it, did I just take a huge risk here? Is is this service or is this person really going to deliver for for my needs? Like, there are all these questions 
Um, and the way that, and, and you need to put those questions at ease with a really, you know, orderly and predictable onboarding process. You know? What's, what's the, no matter what the process and onboarding is a great one to start with, but what would be the, I think you work, you know, you've seen, you've had a lot of conversations around this. What are the com- most common things that you think stop people from creating a process? Um, yeah, I mean, I think um, it, it, the thing is, it, it takes more work. It takes more time. You know, it's it's easy to to say, oh, I just got this client. They paid this amount. Let's just do that project for that client. Um, we don't need to spend all this extra time, extra hours on documenting this process or or even thinking strategically about what what's a better way to, for us to do things in our business because that you know consultants and freelancers they're used to charging for their time and that's work that you're not necessarily charging for right um but and and that and that will you know that'll suit you just fine for a couple of years for for a comfortable freelance living right but eventually you know if you're going if your goal is to grow if your goal is to grow a team and double or triple or 5x revenue and profit and, and grow a larger company or even to to remove yourself and gain more freedom back you know you're going to need to figure out systems and processes to to do that um and uh and and the the goal there is really to make things as predictable as possible because it's inevitably client services are going to be unpredictable every project is different every client is a little bit different they ask for different things um, you give them different quotes different proposals um, but if if you're going to grow, the the path to do that is to make things more predictable, like start to sell a predictable service, start to do it in a predictable way, similar timelines, similar packages. Um, and and then that makes it easier to hire people to remove, you know, to remove yourself from from those predictable jobs and in, in those processes and everything. And, and all that takes takes time to, to work through. Oh, it strikes me that there's a lot of value in, even if it's just like that initial process of client onboarding, just defining it, writing it down. What I always like about it is you could then iterate on it instead of it being, you know, ad hoc, I'm guessing, I think, you know, we sent them this welcome package or we sent them the welcome packet. It's documented and you're just able to say, okay, these are the steps and, you know, periodically, okay, which of these steps do we want to improve? What's changed in our business that we need to reflect here in onboarding? I guess it keeps you more consistent instead of improvisation. You're playing with sheet music. That's my favorite part about it is is the is the constant improvement because it's like the the best way to improve the process is just figure out like well what just went wrong here why why did this one project break down in a certain way uh, well there there must be a step in the process that either wasn't done it was missed or we didn't even have it documented or or we didn't think about this edge case scenario um, that's the great that's the great thing about it is going back to the process going back to the machine and and tinkering with it and, and improving it. Um, and that, and again, like that, that's, it's one of the big reasons why process kit exists is, is instead of going back to the Google docs and then telling everyone about the new policy in process kit, you can just change the process template. And we have this feature where you can propagate that change out to all of your active projects, uh, without disrupting them. It's just like the, the new, the new way of doing things is instantly pushed out, you know? That's wonderful. I've been uh, I've been a SOPs and processes in Google Docs guy for probably the last six or seven years, and I've run into the pains that you've already touched on. Where it it's good to start with, 
but you rapidly run into scaling issues or just, oh, this is a very overgrown garden of processes. What are we supposed to do with it? It sounds like ProcessKit really solves for these common pain points. I was just talking to my team manager today about this. Right now, we're overhauling our, our um, new manager training process. Um, and uh, and like what we used to have spreadsheets linking to hundreds of Google Docs, and uh, and now and now we've we've moved everything into Process Kit, and so it's just much simpler. And um, and, and yeah, like we're we're just trying to find like th really the goal here is to is to simplify our processes because um, one of the one of the challenges that we ran into after a few years of growing audience ops with using SOPs and Google Docs is that we just built up way too many SOPs and and each one was way too long. Um, and it it just added a lot of extra mental effort for our team, especially for the brand new people getting trained up. Um, you know, we even ran into a few times where the person was just so overwhelmed that they decided like it's not a good fit for me to work at Audience Ops. Um, uh, and and like that that was like we really need to simplify things for our team. You know, um, and and again, like that's that's why we're moving to, to everything over to Process Kit. Do you have a do you have a, like a guideline for how much detail like goes into a step like for a process like any sort of you know like because I think you can make obviously a process can be uh, each step could be very generic or huge or it could be very small or uh and and um crispy like how do you have any sort of guidelines that like okay what should be a, a step or how much detail you put into it yeah uh, a few a few thoughts there um one is I tend to like to have steps that are just the things that need to be tracked, essentially. Um, so uh, in a new client onboarding process, like we know we need to track when we've received their onboarding form and we need to track, have, have they booked their call? Have we completed the call? Have we sent the first update email on week one? Like these are things that we can check off and we could see, did that actually get done or, or, or was it missed? Right. So that, that's usually like the purpose of having each step. And then in terms of how much detail, you know, we, we would include in it, it doesn't need to be super detailed. And sometimes it could be a short loom video or, or a screenshot or something like that. Um, but there's, I think there's also a rule of thumb with, you know the team is very talented, and we hire very highly highly skilled, talented people. They're they're original thinkers, right? So we're not telling them how to how to create their work. We're just giving them the guidelines of what we need in the final deliverable. You know, so like so we hire a lot of writers and copy editors at, at Audience Ops for for blog content. Um, we don't tell them how to structure a sentence or. Or, or how to, or how to, you know, structure a paragraph or an article. Um, we only hire really great writers. Uh, they're they're great at that, and they're great at doing their own research and everything. But but we'll just give them guidelines around like, okay, we need articles of fifteen hundred words, and we need um, we need them structured and delivered in 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 this sort of format. To, to and then it gets handed off to the copy editor, and then you know, so that's that that's really what the what the processes include. Reflecting back what I'm hearing, so it's a little less, you know, paint by numbers and more, hey, we need a painting of, you know, uh, uh, a pasture scene, just something in summer with a, a horse somewhere in it, where you're giving them guidelines within the process, but not these are the specific steps to take. 
Yeah, and like the, the every article, so this would be the same in, in almost any client service. The the work that we deliver to clients is original and unique. You know, um, it's not like we reuse content for for two clients, right? So, um, uh, and you know, every client is we we have some sort of niche focuses, but every client's audience and topic area is generally different. So, um, uh, you know, the the what the process is. The process lays out how we go, the process for how we go from topic idea to researching that topic, to draft, to copy editing, to set up for publishing and, and then promotion. But the content is different um, and, and unique. And, and But the timeline is all the same. The tools we use this is the same. The way that we communicate internally, the way we communicate with the client, all of that follows the same standard way of, of getting it done. Wonderful. Switching switching tracks a bit here, uh, I want to talk to you a bit about productized services. You've had a course on productized services for a while now, uh, productized and scaled, I think, from 2014. Uh, uh, there was a line on your website when I was preparing for this uh, conversation. You said the key for a productized service is to stop thinking in terms of skills and services, but to start thinking in terms of problems and solutions. And I thought that was just a beautiful way to encapsulate the benefit, the value of a productized service approach. Yeah, and I and I think that's the way to think about any product, no matter what kind of product it is. Um, and so it's sort of taking that product thinking and applying it to services, right? Um, because so many of us, I mean, myself included, I come from being a freelance web designer. I, I was doing websites for everyone, you know, universities, blogs, doctors, lawyers, you know, you name it. Um, and um, uh you know, the, the typical freelancers mindset is, and even large agencies too, to a certain extent is they're thinking about like, we have these skills and these talents, who needs them? <laughs> who, who wants to, who wants to hire us for, for what we're able to do? Probably a, a lot of different people, but that doesn't define one ideal customer and one ideal problem that they have that you happen to have a really great um, solution or experience around or, um, insider knowledge or, or some special methodology for, for doing it in a really excellent way. That that's, that's the problem and solution. And, and I mean, you don't have to go that route. You don't have to identify the problem and solution, but, but the result when you don't is that you, you stay in this like generalist area, right? Um, and that could be fine. Maybe you do just a handful of really large projects a year and everyone's completely different and that, that could, that could be great. Um, but, but again, if your goal is to, um, scale and remove yourself from the day to day, from being in the weeds with, with clients every day and, and have a system and a process to actually grow the team and grow the client base, you know, you'll want to, you'll want to get to that level of predictability, um, so that, we just signed up a new client. Now they're going to go through our client onboarding process and our team is going to handle that. And then they're going to deliver the services. Um, and, um, and yeah, like the, the way that you do that is the, the way that you're able to even do marketing in the first place is by understanding who your ideal customer is and the problem that you're solving for them. Because again, before that, if you're this generalist, you you can have a, a comfortable living as a freelancer, or consultant, or a small agency, um, and live purely off of referral business, 
um, if you develop your network and, and you, you know, that, that would naturally happen over time if you're doing good work and, and you're reliable. Um, but if you want to be strategic about marketing, if you ever want to invest in marketing, if you want to say, oh, we're going to double our traffic and our leads and our sales next quarter, we're, like we're going to do that. You can't just predict that when you're when you're relying on referrals. But if you're but if you have a marketing strategy, then you can say like that's going to be our goal for for Q1 of next year. And then, well, now how do we get in front of more of our ideal customers who are more likely to say yes and more likely to resonate with this problem that we've identified? Yeah, I, I'm in complete agreement with you. Like having that clear picture of the problem that you're solving and who you're solving it for makes it so much easier to think strategically and just figure out, okay, is this a valuable action for me to engage in? Well, does it get you closer to those people? Does it help you demonstrate expertise with that problem? If yes, go and do it, do more of it. If no, eh, maybe you should still do it, but maybe you should consider some other things that get you closer to those customers or help you develop a better understanding of who they are and how you could help. Yep. Yeah, for sure. And understanding like even, even when you know the various problems it's it's also a question of like how painful are those problems and and are are people actively searching for for solutions to those problems you know so how uh how do you recommend people evaluate that to sort of study okay is this a painful enough problem to turn it into a productized service or to double down on it further um yeah i mean like most consultants and agencies have have experience working with clients you could just look back to your history of what what did clients hire me for and, and, you know, you'll want to go a layer deeper, like they didn't just hire you to design their website or they didn't just hire you to write their page. You know, why do they want the page written? Why, why do they want an effective website? Because they, their business has some specific goal or some specific need or, or problem that, that they needed solved. And, 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 you know, you can even think about like the, the person who decides whether it's the founder of the business or maybe you're working with a marketing director or someone like that in, in a company, what, what is it that they need? Do, do they need to hit a certain sales target? Do they want to grow their business in a certain way? Do they just need to impress their boss? Like what, what is, what are they in it for? Um, and, um, and then you start to, um, uh, so, so like some people can be very data, and you know, analytical about this, and I, I like to look at at data where I can, but I tend to lean more on the uh, on like the conversations side of of things, right? So, um, I I really like to just talk to potential customers or or people in this market, and usually that starts with either a direct outreach, um, or or I'll send a survey and I'll read their responses and then have conversations off of like the best responses. Um, and then I'm just having conversations, which might even look like sales conversations. Um, but to me, even, even when I do sales calls today, I, I still approach them in very much the same way as like a customer research conversation. They're, they almost, they're almost identical because it's really just me asking a lot of questions um, and getting them answering, getting them talking about themselves, talking about their challenges, their problems, and and they eventually either reveal the solution that they're looking for, or they confirm why they reached out to you about your solution in the first place. Um, and it's sort of just you know understanding what they want and and get into that alignment. No, I love it. I think like in both contexts, be it sales, market research, or something else, 
it often just boils down to take a genuine interest into the other person, their situation, their needs. And from that, the important, the crispy details, the, oh, this is the actual problem. You didn't just need a website. You needed a reason for the boss not to say, ah, we don't need to expand your team just by having those conversations, just by taking that interest and asking some follow-up questions. Yeah. Yep. You uh, earlier referenced the value when identifying a productized service to look at, you know, the past proposals, what you sold in the past. I've long been a fan of that approach, but one objection I've run into with my clients or my colleagues is they look at them in the past proposals, the past projects. Some are a bit older, some might be recent, but they never had that sort of value-focused or why-focused conversation with that client. And so in a conversation with them, it's like, okay, so you sold, you know, these four website packages. What was the need? I don't know. They needed a website. When somebody sort of runs into that barrier where they don't have that contextual information, what path do you recommend to them sort of overcome that barrier or get a better perspective on why these people have hired them for these projects in the past? Um, well, I think that's probably different for each individual person. Uh, but there, you know, there might be sometimes there I've, I've experienced this myself where it's just like, you don't personally relate to your, to your customer. Um, I mean, I used to do websites for restaurants. <laughs> I have no connection to the restaurant industry or restaurant owners in general. And to be honest, that was a big challenge for me. And, and it's one of the reasons why I decided to sell that business is, is because like I didn't personally feel compelled to go fly to Chicago to go to the restaurant industry conference every year and hang out with those people for, for four days at a hotel like that. That didn't seem interesting to me, you know, um, and talking to them every day on sales calls. I mean, eventually I had a sales team, but um, still like it, it felt like it was uh a lot of extra work that I just didn't enjoy doing to, to think about like, how can I really grow this business for these people? I just didn't really care as much. Um, and so, I mean, you're not going to find a perfect alignment. It's not like you're, you know, um, uh, you know, like I, like I hate the advice of like, Oh, just do what you love or just follow your, your passion or whatever. Like you still need to find a market that's active and that, that has a problem that you're capable of solving. Um, but if you could start to move, toward a direction where where at least you have like you usually over time you'll 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 have you'll develop some contacts some networks that you're just naturally drawn to right so um number one it could be contacts from your your industry whether you're attending conferences or now now we're attending zoom calls but like um uh, or or you've been working in an industry and like you have uh contacts at different companies that you've worked with so then you have some insider knowledge about them, right? That most people in the world don't have. And that's where you start to uncover like, oh, they, they need to do things in a very special way. Um, and I, I know the ins and outs of that. So I know the, the best possible solution for that. You know? when, when it comes to evaluating productized offers and deciding what to create or if the productized path makes sense, are there reasons to not create a productized offers or not create a productized offer? Why should somebody potentially avoid this potential path when launching a new service offering? Um, yeah, of course, you know, it's, it's not for everyone, you know? Um, and, uh, and, and I mean, productized services come in so many different forms now too. Um, uh, I just put out this article a few months back. Uh, it's actually like 50 different examples of productized services, but we broke it down into like, um, like five or six, business models 
even under the umbrella of productized services, right? Like, um, you know, there's like recurring services, sort of like audience ops, and there's one-off services, and there's um, quote-unquote unlimited services. If you think about like a design pickle or or like a, what used to be WP Curve, where there, it's just like unlimited website updates or something. Um, so th those th there's different there's different ways to be interested in productized services, and and each model has you know sort of aligns with different goals for the founder, um, but there's still uh, certainly a case to be made that there's, there's always going to be a, a really good market for custom services, uh, you know, big project or big contract services. And I've seen many times like a productized service can lead to a larger custom engagement, right? So, uh, like a common model would be, um, so for like SEO consultants, maybe the productized offer is, is an audit. And, and with this paid audit, you, we're going to develop, we're going to, research your industry, talk to you over a call, we'll develop this report. And, and that's sort of a game plan. And that's, and that's worth uh, some price. And then coming out of that, it's like, well, now to implement this, it, it involves all these other custom uh, custom work that would take a, a long time to do. And that, that could, you know, that that's perfectly fine model, I think. Um, uh, you know, I, I think also there, there's, there's this tendency um, cause I felt it too, back when I was doing freelance web design services, my, I mean, my goal was to, was to eventually grow a SaaS company, a software company. And a lot of, not everyone, but a lot of agencies are trying to make that leap from services to a software product or a course product or a book or something like that. And, you know, some have been successful with that, but the vast, vast majority are just not successful in making that leap. It's 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 just an extremely difficult leap to make um, because software takes a ton of time to not only build, but also to gain traction with. Um, creating a course takes a lot of time to create and launch, but both of those, you need to develop an audience and a, and a traffic source to, to have customers. Um, all of that takes a really, really long time. And that's why it's really difficult for a, a, an agency to, in, to reinvest all these hours and resources and money and people to, to, to getting there. And that's, that's why I, I like to think of the productized service as like, to me, it's, it, it, for, in my experience, it's been that path of least resistance, you know, um, uh, I mean, I couldn't make the leap directly to, to products. I had to, I had to do this service so that it, 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 it's, it was the fastest way to grow recurring revenue and the fastest way to remove myself from the day-to-day -day operation, which then f opened up the possibility for me to build software while having my time self-funded, you know, um, that, that was, that, that was sort of like the obvious pathway for, for me. Yeah, it's funny. You, you do mention a few times, like, you know, if you if your goal is to scale, to grow, you know, your team or uh, to like, you know, that you need, you know, that uh, you need processes, productized service is a good way to go. Do you, do you see it as possible to grow a pos uh, productized service without growing a team, like to maintain solo, like, or and is that a good, you know, path to look at if you even if you just want to stay solo? Yeah, I do think so. Um uh, you know, I, like the term "productized consulting" gets gets thrown around a lot, um, 
And, and I think that, you know, that, that's a path that can, at that, at that level, I, I would, in most cases, you're optimizing for not so much growth, but you're optimizing for, I really want to enjoy my work. Right. And, and I really, and that means enjoying the clients that you work with and enjoying the nature of the work that you're doing and enjoying the, the income that you make from your work and the time freedom that you still have. So, so, so how can you opt, how can you remove all the stuff that you don't like and just focus on the things that, that you do like? Um, and that's where like a, a more predictable way of, of marketing your services and the, and a predictable, uh, ideal customer that you work with. Um, it makes all that, you know, a lot easier, you know, maybe you don't need to rely so heavily on, um, fully documented processes because you're not necessarily delegating so much to other team team members but it it could help from a strategic standpoint just to document you know high level what what you're focused on and then that can translate to like your sales page and things like that no i love it one of my major takeaways from this conversation is i guess the value in making it a little more predictable for yourself as the business owner. And that might trickle down to like, we have a defined onboarding process. We have defined processes or we've productized a service. So it's not new lead shows up, roll the dice. Oh, they want a website for dog doctors. Do we provide that? Let's find out. Instead, you're just able to say, okay, these are our offerings. These are our processes. And if you're solo, if you have a small team, if you have a large team, it's easier to know what people or yourself should be focused on to make sure the work is moving forward, to make sure leads are coming in. I guess it removes that variance, removes the guessing game. Yeah, it's it really is all about predictability, um, and and it's it's like as the business owner, like if you do have a, a team or if you're thinking about hiring your very first project manager or or assistant or someone like that, um, you know the first roadblock to doing that is is going to be like, well, are they are they doing their their work like I would do it, or or are they letting things fall through the cracks or are my clients being taken care of if I'm not the one communicating with them or delivering things to them, you know, that's where a predictable process, uh, is, is that uh, safety net to, to make sure that things are, that, that, that you could rest assured when, when you sell a new client on your service, you can hand them off to your team and, and you feel, uh, you know, confident that your team can, can run with it. As close to telepathy as you can get. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and, and I think, I think that, that too can be a challenge, um, uh, because I, I've been guilty of this too, is, is like early on putting way too much detail in, into, into processes and, and finding like, you know, the team is, I mean, the audience ops team is much more talented than I am when it comes to writing and, and researching and, and even communicating with clients. Our, our managers are much better at that than I am. Um, frankly, they have a lot more patience than I do <laughs> when it comes to that stuff, you know, but, um. And so, and so over the years, they, they've, they've, they've suggested ways to, to do things more efficiently. And, and, um, and so I think, I think as the business owner, like early on, it makes sense to just document the process that the way that you know how, but as the, as the operation grows, um, you'll find it's better to, to let your team take more of the lead on that. And, and you can just guide more of the strategy. As we start to wrap up the episode, any final thoughts on either processes or productized services for our listeners? Any uh, anything that comes to mind to share? 
You know, one thing I like, I mean, like you said, I've been uh, writing about and teaching productized services uh, since 2014, probably writing about it since, since before then. Um, and so here we are and we're going into 2020. It's been like seven or eight years. Um, and, you know, productized services have certainly been around much longer than that, too. Um, I, I'm noticing now like the, the topic and the, and the interest is, is much more widespread than it was a few years ago. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of noticing this, it's sort of good and bad. I think it, there's a lot of people looking at productized services, like it's a, like it's a hot startup trend. Um, but, but I've always been more, more focused on the freelancers and the agencies who, who've been working with clients for a few years and they're trying to figure out, is this going to be it? Like the same model for the rest of my career or what's next? And, and, um, I think that's a much more interesting way to think about productized services is like, like you've been freelance for a few years now taking like the next logical step to building a more predictable business. Um, you know, and, and I think that the, for lack of a better term, like a startup y approach to like, if, if you've never been in client services before, um, you know, it, it, it could, sometimes it could work really well. And, and sometimes it can just, you know, you're, I think freelancers and agencies have the benefit of, of knowing what it's like to work directly with clients and what clients expect. Um, and so, and so that can just make for a better business. Let's chat picks for this week. Uh, Brian, I'm curious, uh, did you bring any exciting picks to share with our listeners? Um, so I'll give you, uh, one, uh, something that, that my team and I have been working on and one that's sort of fun. Um, so, uh, you know, we were talking about process kit, which is, you know, software for managing processes and, and, and for your team. But um, uh, a writer and, and myself have been coming out with a, a bunch of new content and I've been doing some video courses and things, which is all free over on the, the Process Kit website. Um, I'll give you guys the link, but just this week uh, we published a new uh, guide to new client onboarding, which we were, you know, just talking about earlier. Um, and 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 it basically gives away some some recommendations for how to restructure your uh, your new client onboarding process. Um, so I, I think that would be really helpful for folks, whether you end up using Process Kit for that or or whatever other tools you're using. I, I think I think that would be helpful because it's like it's it's like my 2020 version of 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 thinking through that that process that that I've been thinking about for years. Um, fun one. Uh, I'm I'm a huge podcast fan, and I've been listening to. Um, have you guys heard of this uh, show, Smartless? Oh, I haven't. It's um, it's the actors um, Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, and Sean Hayes. Ooh. Uh, so the three of them co-host a show and then they have a fourth guest on every, and it, you know, it's all celebrities. It's like comedians and, and, and other celebrities, um, actors. Uh, and it's just, so it's four people like talking shop and it's hilarious and, and they bust each other's chops and, and, and I guess the, the fun thing, the, the twist on it is, is, is one of those three invites the guest and the guest is like a surprise guest to the other two. Oh. Um, <laughs> it's it's pretty cool. I, I, and it's just it's it's got to be like one of the funniest shows that I've been listening to. I, I usually don't don't miss a, an episode. So. Wonderful. I'm gonna have to a little check little non business podcast for you all. <laughs> Meg, how about yourself? Uh, any picks for the week? 
Yeah, um, I guess I'll re- recommend um, for anybody who's, uh, you know, maybe solo, like I, I started for my bookkeeping using FreshBooks, uh, which was a huge upgrade from no bookkeeping software. Um, but uh, as uh, in the last few years, as I've been working in multiple currencies and just it's it kind of hit up, it's it was more, it's better for invoicing and expense tracking than actual accounting. So I've been making the transition to using QuickBooks Online, which I thought would be super intimidating. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I did have someone, a bookkeeper help set me up with it, but it's just going to, it's leveling up my accounting so that it's, uh, yeah, much more, um, uh, going to be much easier at tax time to be able to pass things over and not, you know, fresh books required a lot of, um, strings to, <laughs> to attach at tax time. So if you're looking, if, if you start to hit up against a wall with uh, fresh books or another one, I, I do recommend QuickBooks online. It looks more intimidating than it is, especially if you get a bookkeeper to help you uh, set things up. So, uh, yeah, anybody looking to level up that area. I took a similar, I was, I was on FreshBooks for years when I was doing freelance web design stuff and I loved it. Great, great company, great products. Um, and then, um, sometime around, uh, around, I think, I think when I started audience ops, that's when I switched to, I, I hired a new bookkeeper. That person was a specialist on zero, the, um, X E R O. Um, and that's what my books are on now, but I'm like, I'm afraid of even touching zero. Like I, I don't know, I don't know how to navigate anything in there. Like, um, you know, I, I get my income reports and in, in spreadsheets from her, but like I know that the data is is in there, <laughs> uh, and and that's that you know. That that's kind of all I need. My my bookkeeper's handling it for sure. Yeah, my my biggest <laughs> my biggest thing with FreshBooks was like not it was just automatically assigning values for oh you charge this in USD and I'm I'm in Canada so it, and it was just it was just automatically picking wrong values for Canadian dollars and it just made tax time not fun for me so <laughs> so uh, yeah that was my 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 reason to, but it's, it's good to get those things officialized, but FreshBooks works really, really well for people starting out. That's for sure. <laughs> Two picks from me this week, uh, both are fantasy books. I've been on a Neil Gaiman kick again, and I've just listened to, uh, his excellent book, Norse mythology. This was Neil retelling, uh, uh, Norse myths, you know, Thor, Loki, Odin. And, uh, I just started listening to an earlier book of his American gods, both are excellent. Uh, the one thing I'll add about Norse mythology is Neil narrates it himself. And I always love hearing an author read their own work. They're able to, you know, just communicate it a little better. It definitely comes through in the performance and presentation. So if December is, you know, getting you down and you're looking for a couple fantasy books to listen to, I definitely plug uh, Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology and American gods. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Business of Freelancing. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast host of choice. And if you didn't enjoy this episode, go ahead and leave us a five-star review and let us know what we could improve. See you on the next episode.